Well, as long as there has been money, there has been debt, or people borrowing money, and so long as there has been debt, there have been people who can't pay it back. And such people have suffered various forms of consequences throughout history. The ancient Greeks practiced debt slavery. And so if you owed a debt that you could not repay, or repay rather, you and your wife, your children, would be forced into slavery and to be made to repay what you owed through physical labor. Later in Europe, debtors' prisons became the main way to deal with people who were in debt that they could not repay. Those who became insolvent were incarcerated by a court order, and there you remained until your family on the outside could get you out of debt. As time went on, nations became a bit more humane in dealing with people who couldn't pay their debts, uh, debts, and the concept of bankruptcy formed. Bankruptcy provided a way for people to settle their debts and get a fresh start without having to go to jail. That sounds good. People could retain their freedom, but most likely they'd have to forfeit all of their assets. So today, for example, you could declare a a chapter seven bankruptcy and that releases you from most of your debts, still not student loans, but most of your debts, but all of your non-exempt property is going to be sold to pay back as much as you can. That might include your house, your car, your investments, coins, jewelry, furniture, art, you name it. And there are other lasting consequences to declaring bankruptcy. I mean, it's going to remain on your credit record for a decade. It's going to kill your credit score. And you'll have a hard time getting any other loan. And so while bankruptcy may be a, a decent way to get out of debt, it's still seen as a very challenging and painful process. It carries a bit of a stigma as well. And that's why most people see it as a last resort. The last thing they want to do is declare bankruptcy. Now, with this in mind, let's say you go to a financial advisor. Not because you're in debt. You have no debt. You don't need to declare bankruptcy. But you want to learn how to manage your money better. This guy has a track record, track record of helping people get rich. He's the, the top financial investor in, in the area. So you sit down together for your first meeting, and he, he says, All right, I'm going to tell you that the secret to, to wealth, to, to making money, to financial stability. If you want financial peace, you need to declare bankruptcy. The secret is bankruptcy. Blessed are the bankrupt, he claims. Now, if this actually happened to you, how would you respond? Imagine a large chunk of you would just walk out and like, okay, I've heard enough here. This guy clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, that bankruptcy is not a blessing. It seems more like a curse. It's not a sign of being fortunate, but unfortunate. And you're pretty sure that's not the way to financial stability and frustrated. You'd probably just walk out. Others, though, might be a bit more intrigued. Yeah, your knee-jerk reaction is to recoil against what this financial planner is saying, but You recall he's got really good credentials. He has a very high success rate. Kind of seems like he knows what he's talking about. Maybe there's more here. Maybe he's not telling me something. Maybe there's a catch. And so being intrigued, you stick around and say, all right, right, tell me what you really mean when you say, blessed are the bankrupt. Now, I simply bring this up as a reflection, both of how the Lord Jesus taught and how people responded to him. Because Jesus made these controversial and Paradoxical statements all the time. His words flew in the face of conventional wisdom and accepted beliefs of his day. And so much of what he said sounded at first blush wrong. And as a result, many people turned away from him. Many people immediately wrote him off as a deluded teacher. 
Others, however, notably his disciples, they stuck around. They were intrigued. And they still had a hard time with the hard sayings of Jesus. Because he just said so many things that went against what everybody seemed to believe. But his disciples just couldn't turn away from him. They really believed he came from God. Jesus had some pretty stellar credentials. He was going around healing people of all sorts of illnesses, casting out demons, working wonders. And so even when Jesus made paradoxical statements or gave proverbial sayings, his disciples stuck around. And later they came back, they asked him, all right, so tell us what you really meant by all that. Like Matthew 13, 11, it says, Jesus came to reveal many mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Not all were willing or able to receive what he said. Many turned away. They were blind. But Christ said of his true disciples, Matthew 13, 16, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Blessed is one who has a true spiritual vision and is able to discern the words of life that come from our Lord. That's very much the case with our text today, which comes a little earlier in Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew 5. Just verses 3 and 4, you can turn there now, where we hear another statement of blessing. And this passage, Matthew 5, forms the beginning to the Beatitudes. The most famous discourse Jesus ever gave was the Sermon on the Mount. And they begin with the equally famous Beatitudes. But these sayings themselves are shrouded in mystery. And here Jesus makes very strong paradoxical claims. Sermon on the Mount begins with a series of eight proclamations of blessing. They're called Beatitudes on his disciples. But he doesn't pronounce blessing on people the way you might expect. This picture of blessedness runs completely contrary to the ways of the world and the thinking of the world. I mean, everyone, everyone knows what it means to be blessed. Right? To be under God's favor means to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Right? But Jesus here teaches pretty much the opposite. I mean, you look at verses 3 through 12 at a glance. He teaches, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the grieving. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are the persecuted. I mean, at first glance, you see a description of blessing like this. Your knee-jerk response might be to, to walk out, like talking to that crazy financial planner. And Christ's claims here just run so completely contrary to what you think you know, what the world says. This, this can't be true. And even if it is, if this is the picture of blessedness, who would want it? But perhaps part of you is still intrigued. I mean, what exactly does Jesus mean with these Beatitudes? What's he really getting at here? Is there more than meets the eye? I mean, you look at the first Beatitude in verse 3. The world would say, blessed are the rich. But Christ basically says, blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are the poor. He says, theirs even is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom doesn't belong to the rich, but to the poor. Also take the second beatitude. The world says, blessed are the happy, those who party. But Jesus basically says, blessed are the sad. Blessed are those who mourn. But what does this mean? 
I can tell you already, it, it surely means more than you think it means. These are great mysteries to the kingdom revealed to those who have eyes to see. There's so much more than meets the eye with these Beatitudes. And over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to start picking through them one by one with the goal of just to make clear the mysteries of the kingdom Jesus revealed. Over the past two weeks, we've done a special introduction to the Sermon on the Mount in general and to the Beatitudes in particular. Both of these have as their main subject, the kingdom of heaven. But it's in the Beatitudes especially, Jesus is revealing the character of those who will inherit that kingdom. And this is something every disciple of Christ should want to know and embody. And that's certainly our aim as well. So we have our work cut out for us because these are enigmatic sayings. But as you carefully peer into them with, with eyes of faith, you discover here the nature of true blessing. And that, that's what we want to do. Discover from Christ, the nature of true blessing from the Beatitudes. Without further ado, we're going to start today by going through the first two, the first pair of Beatitudes. And so we begin with number one, blessed are the poor. Starting off from verse three, blessed are the poor. As Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These Beatitudes are stark sayings upon which Jesus does not elaborate. He doesn't stop and fill us in on what he means. If he did that, it would completely take away the impact and the the power of these statements. He leaves it to his listeners to discern what he means. And to be sure, these Beatitudes must be interpreted. Just by the fact that all words have a range of meaning... And so we right, rightly need to question, what does Jesus mean by these words? And let's start with what he does not mean. And a wrong interpretation would be to see here a reference to the financially impoverished. This has been the predominant view of the Catholic Church. You may have heard of St. Francis of Assisi, who lived a drastic life of poverty, in part based on this beatitude. Blessed are the poor. Right? That the poor are closer to God because they're free from the goods of this world that consume us. But you have to be careful. If you take this view, you better be willing to live up to it. That's something the Christians of the 4th century were not willing to do. There's a wicked emperor, Emperor Julian, and he's persecuting the Christians. He wanted to confiscate all Christian property. And he basically communicated to them like he's doing them a favor. He's going to make them poor, and that way they could inherit the kingdom. This word for poor in verse 3 does refer to a person in abject poverty. Tokos is the word. It refers to a man who lives not by labor, but by alms. It's derived from an adjective meaning to crouch or to to cower. It pictures a, a beggar with his head bowed down in shame, but his hand is still outreached looking for alms. This is not the person who has very little. This is the person who has nothing and is left to beg. The same word was used to describe Lazarus in the well-known parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, 19 through 21. It tells us there was a rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. But then it says in verse 20, and a poor man named Lazarus 
was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. It's a picture of abject poverty. Now, it is true that in the teachings of Jesus, the financially rich are often portrayed as being excluded from the kingdom and the poor inherit it. And Christ does say that it's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. Matthew 19, 23. But you have to not fail to grasp why that is. You don't gain entrance to the kingdom by any class, by being a part of any class, be it your gender, your ethnicity, your status, your wealth. It's not like the rich are automatically excluded and the poor just waltz right in. There'll be many poor people who are, find only perdition. And there'll be many rich in the kingdom. The real issue that keeps the rich out is not their money, but their love of money. Just like the rich young ruler we read about. It's not that he was too financially rich for the kingdom. We're not Abraham, Job, David, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Philemon. All accepted by God, even though they were quite rich. Their riches did not exclude them. <clears throat> what keeps men like the rich young ruler out is their love of money. And Jesus identified for that man that, that money was his true God, his true master, his Lord. And you simply cannot have two masters. This man needed to repent of his love of wealth. And Christ identified for him that the fruit of that repentance would be to give it all away. But on the flip side, you can have a, a true beggar living on the streets. He's nothing to his name. And a passerby comes and gives him one dollar. In his heart, he could love that one dollar so much and cherish that one dollar. And set his hope on that one dollar so much that he would be too rich for the kingdom of heaven. And to take Christ's words here in the Beatitudes as referring just carpetly to the financially poor is a serious error. It's actually led some people away from the kingdom. I mean, how many sad, misguided monastics have there been throughout church history who thought they could just automatically gain their way into the kingdom by taking a vow of poverty? As if the kingdom is just given to you by self-effort, by austerity. No, but it should be plain to see that Jesus intends his words here to be taken spiritually. What he says is still literally true. It's just that he has a spiritual intent behind them. He's not talking about financial poverty, but spiritual poverty. And the text and the context make this interpretation pretty clear. When you think about the context, we've already established how the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom is not of this world. And the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates on the cross is a spiritual kingdom. This spiritual kingdom of heaven is likewise the theme of the Beatitudes. And you'll notice, you know, that the first Beatitude in verse 3 and the last Beatitude in verse 10, they have the exact same consequence, the exact same reward. They both stand out in saying, as a consequence, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both in the present tense, for theirs is 
the kingdom of heaven. This forms what's called an inclusio. And these are like bookends to the Beatitudes, indicating that everything inside the bookends is likewise talking about that kingdom of heaven. These Beatitudes are all about the spiritual character of that kingdom and those who will inherit it. And so note, for example, down to verse 6, it's not just the hungry and the thirsty who are blessed, but it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then if we can just state the obvious, I mean, doesn't Christ himself pretty much tell us what he means by adding the phrase in spirit to verse 3, to the beatitude of verse 3? It's not just blessed are the poor, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the spiritually poor. He's not talking about the financially poor, although they might be, but these are the spiritually poor. And so what we have to do now is simply clarify, what does it mean to be spiritually poor? I mean, you think again about this word for poor, and remember, Jesus is not using a word for a low-income person, but a no-income person. This is a picture of bankruptcy. Someone who has no assets and then just tons of debt. And likewise, the poor in spirit are the spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually speaking, they realize they have only liabilities before God. They've sinned before God. They've fallen short of his perfect righteousness by a mile. It's just like Paul says in Colossians 2.14, that we all have this chirographon, meaning this certificate of debt. We have a record book of all of our debt, and it's filled with page after page of our transgressions against God, our sin debts before him. It's a long book of, of every violation we've ever committed against his perfect will. Each page is in our handwriting. That's what a chirographon was. It was a handwritten certificate of debt. And at the bottom of each page is our signature. We have done this. This is our record of debt before God. It consists of decrees against us. It's hostile to us, Paul says. Our, our, our debt before God condemns us. So what can we do about this, this thick book, this record of our sins, our debt before God? How can we pay this down? The answer is we can't. It's just too large for one. It would take eternity to pay it down. And even at that, God doesn't accept our currency. We don't have anything for which to pay it. We have nothing to offer. And likewise, the spiritually bankrupt are those who understand that they just they have no assets. They have nothing by which to gain God's favor. And all being poor in spirit refers to having a true, accurate understanding of our spiritual standing before God. Namely, that we're just bankrupt. And implicit in this picture is the only right response, namely, to beg. That's all you can do is beg. I mean, just as this word for poor, tokos, refers to the beggar, the poor in spirit are the spiritual beggars. They know they deserve nothing from God. But, but maybe if they beg and plead for mercy, if they confess their sins, if they recognize and acknowledge their unrighteousness, that God might, just might forgive In reality, this spiritual bankruptcy is the condition of all people on the planet. But the poor in spirit are those who recognize it, who own it, who confess it. Not all people do that. 
There are some who deny that they're even in debt to God. Like the Pharisees. They had convinced themselves that their spiritual bank account with God was just fine. I mean, look at how good they are compared to everyone else. I mean, surely they're not in debt. They've, they've done so many good things. I mean, surely God would, would accept them. But the spiritually proud will be completely crushed on the day of judgment when they find that their certificate of debt is alive and well, and God has not accepted any one of their works. Their, their, their self-righteousness is a currency he just doesn't accept. They've done nothing. And if you really quick want to turn over to Luke 18, Christ himself painted the perfect contrast between those who are rich in spirit and those who are poor in spirit. Luke 18, 9 through 14, it's that well-known parable of the Pharisee and the publican, meaning tax collector. You likely know this, but read it again. Luke 18, verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. It says, And Christ also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like Other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. This is the epitome of what it looks like to be rich, rich in spirit. Here's a man who completely trusted in himself and his own works righteousness. Any sin debt he had before God, he believed would be quickly paid off by his his righteousness, all of his goodness. But you see, he made the mistake of, of measuring up his bank account to other people around him, fellow sinners. He really should have checked in with what God wants to see in that bank account. He would have found he's, he's bankrupt. He's got nothing. He's lost. He's hopeless. But those who are rich in spirit like this will be barred from the kingdom. Instead, verse 13, it says, but the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That is the picture of being poor, poor in spirit. And this was a tax collector. Likely, he's actually rich due to all their extortion. He's probably rich, but he had been humbled And made to see his sin, his unrighteousness before God. And then he recognized he couldn't do anything. He couldn't do anything to to pay off his sins, to, to endear himself to God's favor. He wasn't blessed. He was cursed by his sin. And he knew it. Even with all of his money, he knew he was spiritually bankrupt. And so he did the only thing he could. He begged for mercy. And God doesn't have to respond to this because he is guilty. Even the tax collector, he is a sinner. He is guilty. But God is a gracious God. And he promises to give his grace to those who humble themselves, who seek him and confess their sins like this. And so it says in verse 14, Christ says, as after, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, 
went to his house justified. It means made right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here, Christ says, this man who is poor in spirit will be exalted. He was justified. In our beatitude, Christ is saying the same thing, just a different way. He says, they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom. You can go back to Matthew 5. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven of these spiritually poor. Theirs, that word's an emphatic position in the Greek, really indicating theirs alone. Only the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Only those who find God's mercy by humbling themselves and going to Christ find a place under his gracious rule. And speaking of Jesus, you should know that Christ is the only door to this kingdom. He's the one to whom you must go by faith, begging for mercy, because he's the only one who can do something about your sin debt. And that's why Jesus came. You should know his death on the cross was actually a payment. It was a payment to the father for your sin debt. The word for that is propitiation. He came to satisfy, to pay off your debt. He took away all your debt. And in return, he gives you all of his assets, namely perfect righteousness. And this is something you gain by faith in him alone. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that too is spiritually speaking. The kicker though is that this faith in Christ requires from you complete, total Humility, abject humility. You've got to die 100% to self, to self-reliance, to self-will, to self-righteousness. You have to come to depend 100% on Christ alone. And Christ is the only door to the kingdom. And it's a very, very small door. It's open. But it's a very small door. Imagine you get locked out of your house and the only way to get back in is through the doggy door, which actually happened to me once at our old house. I had to do it. And to enter this door, you've got to stoop down and basically crawl in. It's a very humbling position. But look, so it goes with the door of Christ. The proud can't go in because they're just not willing to humble themselves, confess their sins, beg for mercy. As a side note, this is why the financially rich are so often kept out of the kingdom. It's because they're usually just too proud to beg. But the poor of this world, they're already accustomed to begging. And as soon as they become convicted of their sins and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God, they're just already more likely to to know what to do. And that's just to beg for mercy. But to go through this door, you have to humble yourself and come to the end of of yourself. And the store being small means you also can't take anything with you. I mean, you, you can just barely squeeze through this door yourself. You have to leave your possessions, your treasures on the outside. And again, so it goes with the door of Christ. You can bring to him no merit, 
no works, no effort, nothing. You have to instead come just, just empty and naked, trusting in his finished work alone. Augustus Top Lady penned this sentiment perfectly in his classic hymn, Rock of Ages. He wrote this. It's a verse I'm sure you know well. He says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's a perfect poetic cry of the one who's poor in spirit. And thankfully, the Savior promises to receive all people who go through this door, who humble themselves, come to the end of themselves, see their sin, and go to him. And I just pray that the eyes of your own hearts have been opened to see your own spiritual poverty before God. Because only when you see how poor you are will you appreciate how rich he is. And the riches Christ has to offer you. Again, we're not talking about money. But the righteousness you need, apart from which you'll never see the kingdom. And I pray you're not too proud to beg because Christ is our only hope. But we should thank God we serve a merciful God who's even made a door in the first place. Something we just don't deserve. But enter that door of Christ by faith. And you will today take possession of the kingdom of heaven. Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But that's not all. I want to add here the second beatitude because these first two go together and they complement this picture of salvation, entrance to the kingdom that Christ is actually giving. And so let's turn our attention to now number two, blessed are the grieving. Blessed are the grieving. It's coming from verse four, the second beatitude where Christ says, blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Now here's where the the paradoxical nature of the Beatitudes really stands out. Because this kind of sounds ridiculous. He's basically saying, happy are the sad. Right? Blessed are the mourn. How, How can that be? The world does not associate blessedness with grieving or mourning in any way. I mean, doesn't grief represent a lack of God's favor, not the presence of it? And so again, we wonder, what does Jesus mean by these words? We start with the word for mourn, pentheo. And this is the strongest word for mourning used in the New Testament. It refers to the deepest, most heartfelt grief you would experience, typically after the, the death of a loved one. This is what it means to grieve. And that's how this word is used. Pentheo is used of Jacob when he, he wept and mourned for his son Joseph thinking him dead, and also for the disciples when they mourned after the cross, before the resurrection. This was that deep despair type of grief. And here in this beatitude, the Lord is promising comfort to those who grieve like this. But you probably know he's not just offering comfort to all who grieve. This is not about bereavement. Those outside of Christ will actually never know his comfort. They will only know his condemnation. But rather, Jesus blesses those who mourn with kingdom values. It should be evident he's still speaking spiritually. Blessed are those who mourn spiritually. And this is talking about grieving over your sin. 
Just as the poverty of the first beatitude was not financial, but spiritual. And so the grieving of the second beatitude is spiritual. These beatitudes are all about spiritual conditions. And those truly blessed are the ones who weep and mourn over their sin before God. And just to show you that we're not making this up, that we're not reading something into the text that's not there, go back to Isaiah 61. And that's because the words of Jesus in these Beatitudes unmistakably reference back to the promises made in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And this really is the interpretive key that that proves that Christ is speaking spiritually in these Beatitudes about sin and salvation. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The context of Isaiah 61 has to do with Israel. They're mourning over their exile. They've been punished for their sinful rebellion against God with exile. This exile, though, humbled them and led them to reflect on all the sins that got them there. Namely, their immorality, their apostasy, their idolatry. And so the people now are genuinely lamenting and weeping over their sins. They're mourning over sin. And as a result, they're crying out to God. As a result of that, what does God promise to do? He promises to comfort them. How is he going to comfort them? Through a Messiah. The speaker of these promises in Isaiah 61 is none other than the anointed one, the Messiah, the servant of God. And listen to what he promises in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. That's a word for the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Now, first off, you should know that this is the very passage Jesus himself read in the synagogue in Nazareth when he started his Galilean teaching ministry. And he said, this is talking about me. This was the passage he first read. He is this anointed one sent by God. And one day we believe Christ will return to physically deliver his people and establish an earthly kingdom. But the first time he came with respect to sin, to spiritually deliver his people, and establish a spiritual kingdom. And it is that kingdom of which Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes. And you compare, you see the striking verbal parallels between what Christ says in Isaiah 61. It really sheds all the light you need on what Jesus means in our Beatitudes. To the afflicted. It's talking about the needy, the poor, the poor in spirit. He comes to bring good news. And to those who mourn, who weep over their sins, he's come to bring comfort. I mean, the day of his salvation, the day from which we're all released from our spiritual exile, has come. All humanity was cut off from God's kingdom because of our unrighteousness. Only righteousness dwells in the kingdom. And in our sin, we all were exiled. We're all on the outside. But in Christ, we can re-enter. Again, though, this kingdom 
only belongs to whom? To the poor in spirit and to those who mourn. You can go back to Matthew 5 and you can see the relationship and the progression between the first two Beatitudes. Salvation or entrance into the kingdom always begins with being poor in spirit. AKA confessing your sin. You have to first acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy before God that that you're lost. But that in turn should lead you to sorrow. You, You see your sins. You take stock of your zero assets and just infinite debt. In that moment, your heart should sink. You come to terms with the fact that sin has deceived you and killed you. You have dishonored and disparaged your maker. You should grieve. The word for this is contrition. And together, these first two Beatitudes, they really form the first two checkpoints on the road to salvation. Right? First comes confession. Second always comes contrition. First comes the sight of your sin. And then second always comes sorrow over that sin. And there are many people who do not find the narrow way into the kingdom of heaven. Some people never even make it through the first checkpoint. They never see their sin. They never acknowledge they're a sinner. Again, it's just like the Pharisees. They deny that they have any real sin debt before God. And they're going to find a rude awakening when they're barred from the kingdom. Others make it through that first checkpoint, but then they miss the second checkpoint. There are some who who see their sin. They recognize they're a sinner. But then they they never grieve over it. They don't mourn over it. It doesn't really bother them. They know they're not perfect, but it kind of stops there. They don't despair. They don't repent. Commentator Daniel Doriani recalls this sensational true story about Steve Garvey. He's a legendary baseball player from the Dodgers, from the San Diego Padres. And as a player back in the, I think the 80s, as a player, the media called him Mr. Clean but his teammates called him Mr. Phony. And you learn why. Garvey divorced his first wife with whom he had two children and got together with his secretary. She became pregnant with his child, but he dropped her and instead proposed to a third woman. She then, while they're engaged, became pregnant with his child. And he immediately called off that wedding and then right away got engaged to a fourth woman. A news commentator reported on the situation back then. He wrote this, quote, Surprisingly, Garvey did not deny either woman's claim. He acted, shall we say, more like a padre than a dodger. Indeed, he said, If the children are mine, I'll live up to my moral obligations, which I feel strongly about because I am a Christian. In a television, television interview, when asked why he did not seem embarrassed or disturbed by all these affairs, Garvey said that God has a purpose in everything that happens to us, end quote. That's not noble. That's a man who's never learned to grieve and mourn over his sin. And despite his claims to be a Christian, Christ would say he, he will not be comforted, nor will he find entrance to the kingdom. And you have to both see your sin and, and it must break you. You have to grieve over your and righteousness before your God. Only then will you find that third checkpoint, which is repentance. You know, some actually make their way through the first two checkpoints. 
They recognize they're a sinner and they even have a measure of sorrow over their sin. But at that point, they don't look up. They don't see Christ who's the only source of relief and comfort and forgiveness. They instead just look inward. They find only lasting despair and they take the only way out. This describes people like Judas who did mourn over his sin, but not unto repentance, not unto salvation. But a sorrow that is true over sin will always lead to repentance, which in turn leads to faith. This mourning over sin is not, it's not simply feeling bad you got caught in your sin. It's not just being upset over the consequences of your sin. This is a deep grief, a recognition in your soul that can't be manufactured that, that you're wrong with your God. You've offended the one who made you. And this sorrow, like I said, if it's genuine, it will, though, take you to and through repentance. It's just like Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. He makes that distinction. He says, I rejoice to the Corinthian church. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world only leads to death. You know, just like the first beatitude had an implicit response built into it, so does the second. I mean, first, you, you become poor in spirit. And at that point, the only right response is just to beg, to beg and plead for God's mercy. Second, you then mourn over your sin. And at that point, there's only one right response. It's to repent. Repentance, turning away from your sin, forsaking it, was the hallmark of Christ's preaching, right? We already saw how he came preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. <clears throat> There's no entrance into the kingdom without it. You have to forsake your sin. And at its core, it's forsaking living for self if you are going to follow Christ. You must cry out to God for pardon. If you want to know what it looks like to mourn over your sin unto life-giving repentance, Let's go look at King David. That was a man who knew how to mourn over his sin genuinely and repent. And David was a man who truly abused his power. He committed adultery with Bathsheba by taking her. He got her pregnant. Then he had her husband killed to cover it up. He went further than Steve Garvey. But even such great sin can be forgiven. And David was confronted over his sin. His eyes were open to it. He was convicted. He knew he had done wrong. And in his heart, he confessed his sin. He truly mourned over his sin. He had a genuine contrition. And that led him to repent, to cry out to God for mercy. And all those who do so will in the end find, by God's grace, comfort. That's what God gives to those who come to him like this. He will give them actually comfort. Listen to what David himself wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and her husband. Again, Psalm 32. This time we'll read one through five. Psalm 32. David gives his own beatitude when he says, how blessed 
is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. He says in verse three, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That's God's grace that he he let him suffer and be miserable as he held on to his sin. But verse five, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's called comfort. This is what God and his amazing grace offers. He offers that the only real comfort is called forgiveness. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. And this comfort Jesus offers, it's not just feeling better after a good cry. This comfort involves reconciliation to the presence of your God. It only comes one way, by forgiveness. And that forgiveness only comes one way, by the cross. God, he can't just forgive you. He can't just sweep your sins under the rug. You are guilty. But it's only because the sinless son of God took your place on that cross. And he bore the wrath that was due for you. Can you be forgiven? Earlier, we mentioned Colossians 2, which speaks of our our record book of sins, our certificate of debt, this record of all we've done against our God, and and what can we do about it? We can't do anything. But you read the full verse, you realize what what Christ did about it for us. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. It says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And Jesus took your record book of sins. And on each page, he crossed your name out and he wrote his own name. And then on each page, he wrote, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. What what greater comfort is there than this? What greater consolation to know that that you're eternally debt-free? And even more than that, you're rich. You're just filthy rich spiritually, eternally in Christ. Like it says in Isaiah 40, 1 through 2, comfort, oh, comfort my people says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. That is God's comfort to you. And if this comfort is to be yours, though, you must likewise mourn over your sin and repent. There's this amazing irony that when you see your sin, but in pride, you try and cover it, you try and hide it, well, then God's going to come along. He's going to uncover it and you'll be judged. But if you see your sin and in humility, you uncover it. You uncover it yourself. You confess it 
to God in repentance. God comes along and he covers it back up. He pays for it. He takes it out of the way. He forgives you. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Only those who humble themselves like this, though, will find his forgiveness. Remember what James said, James, a half-brother of Jesus. He writes in his epistle, heavily drawing inspiration from the Sermon on the Mount, using the same word for mourning, he says this in James 4, 8 through 10. James 4, 8, he says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's James's version of blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. That's something we need to do all the time. As often as we sin, this mourning is truly a blessing because it, it leads us to find forgiveness and the lasting greater comfort it affords. Some of you here, you, you don't know this comfort because you don't know Christ. And I just hope your conscience is still working, that you still feel bad when you sin. You've not hardened and killed your conscience. It convicts you, condemns you, because deep down you know you're in the wrong before your God. You've done wrong. You've gone astray. You're unrighteous, like all of us. But you need to know there's, there's only one place of comfort you're going to find, and it's, it's in Christ. You have to first see your sin and have sorrow over it. You've got to be poor in spirit and then grieve. You have to repent and believe. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted, but you have to go to him like this first. And I know there's others who, you've already done this, you've gone to Christ, but you're still weighed down with ongoing sin. Because after all, we're still sinners. And maybe you're going through this long, seemingly losing battle with sin in your daily life. And you feel the guilt, the shame, the frustration, the failure. First, you should know you're right to feel that. We're not going to excuse your sin or my sin and say it's okay. Like, don't worry about it. No, you, you should grieve. You should feel bad. But you also need to know that in Christ, you're not meant to stay there. Weep over your sin. Yes, then turn away from it. And let it, though, drive you back to the cross quickly. Quickly go back to the cross where you're reminded what Jesus did to comfort you, to save you. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12. You're meant to be comforted afresh by Christ and his cross. Each and every day, you need to be comforted by his forgiveness. And that's what's going to drive you to greater heights of love and worship and holiness. Just like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, the one who's been forgiven of much loves much. In reality, it is the sight of sin and sorrow over sin that actually produces the greatest love for the Lord. If we ignore our sin, as many Christians do, many churches do, who is Jesus to us? He's just some self-help guru leading us to a better life here below. That's going to yield cheap love and cheap worship. 
But it's only by, by seeing your complete bankruptcy before God. That's when you, you finally get to see Christ is the only Savior. He's my only hope. He's the only one who can forgive your debt and make you eternally rich. That's how you will come to love him, and praise him, and follow him with all your life. And that's the only way you'll be able to say, blessed are the bankrupt, blessed are those who mourn. I'll leave you with the last word again from Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. God says, I dwell on a high and holy place. God is exalted. He dwells in the heavens. But it says, he also dwells with the contrite and the lowly of spirit, the ones bowed down low. He dwells with them in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The holy God who's in heaven up above came down, made himself low to lift up those who are low as well. Blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn. Let that be us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we, we bless your name for the blessing you've given to us of, of salvation. Your kingdom has always been around. You rule over all your creation. But we know here on earth, things have gone astray and awry. You've allowed it, but nonetheless in sin, uh, your reign, your will is not being done here below. And we're a product of that, and we're part of that. We all have sinned before. You all have sinned. And fallen short of your glory, Lord. We, we have a, a huge book of transgressions that keeps us from the glory of your presence, the goodness of your presence forever. And I pray all of us this morning will, will take better stock of ourselves and turn and examine self. We need not worry about the person next to us in this moment, but look in our own hearts and see our own sin, that we are, we are guilty. We have transgressed. We are lost. We're hopelessly bankrupt. It's such a blessing to see that, because that's the only way we'll look up and see the cross. We're reminded, Lord, of what you've done for us. Just purely in your mercy, undeserved. But you sent your son down to make himself of no accord and humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. Also that we might be forgiven and made rich. This is, this is what it means to be blessed. If there's any here who've never done this and, and seen their sin, repented, gone to Christ, I, I truly pray, pray, Lord, right now would be the moment, the time where you'd open their hearts and their eyes to see these mysteries of the kingdom, what it means to be blessed, that they would believe and be born again and changed. And for all of us, though, keep us sensitive to sin. May our consciences not be calloused, but may we always be so sensitive to how we sin against you. Let sin continue to grieve us. That is a blessing for it turns our eyes back to the cross. We are meant to live at the foot of the cross every day. Let us not wander or stray from you. That's what produces our heart of worship. To be with us, humble us. May we draw near to you and trust you will draw near to us. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.